Okay, I want to talk to you um, tonight about uh, faith, hope, and love with a question mark. The reason I put the question mark there is because um, I question sometimes our perception, concept, understanding of, of these three amazing things that, that are mentioned in the very last verse of, of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 13, where it says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. I, I want to make an attempt tonight just to give some challenging definition on these three things because it is my belief that all of humanity is desperate to find the keys to a blessed life and that these three things actually hold the key to a blessed life, faith, hope, and love. I've said to you many times before, and uh, those of you who've never heard me, that um, these principles are not just principles for Christians in church. These are the very same things that actually are the tools that are used throughout the world, throughout humanity, to try and find this process of the, the blessed life. So um, this will be a compacted version. I've got more tweetable sound bites in here than you can shake a stick at because I want to keep it contained because you could speak for a long time on each one of these individual elements, faith, hope, and love, but that's not my objective. My objective tonight is to show you how these three are interconnected and that they have to all work together for you to get the result that they promise. Um, some years ago, a guy called Gary Chapman, who's no relative, uh, having seen the royalties he made from his book, I wish he was, but <laughs> nevertheless, he isn't. He wrote a, a, a great book. Gary... Gary uh, Chapman is a he is a um, uh, a clinical psychologist and and counsellor, and uh, he wrote a book called the five uh, love languages of people, the five languages of love, and uh, in it, what Gary was trying to get a hold of was the fact that in 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 the arena of love, which we all need, you know, all you need is love. Even the Beatles said that. Um, in, in, in all of this, and uh, there's a wonderful tweet this week uh, in relation to all that's been going on with the election. How many of you remember the band Foreigner? Yeah, all right, Jen, thank you. The tweet was wonderful. It said, I won't quote the first word because it began with a B. It says, B Foreigner coming all the way over here just to find what love is. That was great in the context of the, uh, of the election. Anyway, Gary, Gary Chapman, five, five languages of love, um, talked about how we each have a love language that is the language that we require spoken to us in order for us to actually feel this thing that we call love. And, and those five love languages are words of affirmation. Some of us need that. Quality time, that means not, on your phone while you sat with your, with your wife, okay? Receiving gifts, you know that somebody took the time to buy a gift for you. Acts of service, which means that somebody put themselves out to do something important to you, to serve you and to help you. And physical touch, those are the five languages of love. A love language is, is each individual's primary way of expressing and interpreting love. Everyone has a love language. The problem with love languages is, is that we try to speak to another person 
with the language that speaks to us and it doesn't work, okay? So that's, that's why relationships are difficult. That's why you've got to work at marriage because most often, which is rather crazy, two people come together who have different love languages. And then we're trying to feel love and be love and show love, but actually most of the time what we're doing to the other person is showing them love in the way that we require love to be shown to us, which, which, um, which has no impact upon them whatsoever, regardless of the effort and attention we put into it, and vice versa. So um, it's important to learn this, and it's, it, it's a very good book, but I'm not here specifically to talk about um, those five things tonight because although they are the five love languages of people, none of these are God's love language. So God's love language isn't one of these. God's love language is faith. So the way that God feels connected to people is through faith. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament is a whole chapter that talks about faith. And in in verse 6, it it says these words. It it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's God's love language, okay? Now, of course, that sounds a little scary, um, you know, because we think, well, just because we were raised with a God who's always mad, angry, um, a God who's demanding, um, our understanding then of a statement like without faith it's impossible to please God comes as a heavy burden upon us when, when actually it, it, it explains it and says because anyone who comes must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now that's, that's Bible speak which is not very clear. What it really means is, is this, this is what God is looking for that you actually believe that he is who he says he is. Now the problem is, for most of you, your church education taught you to meet a God who is not that God who's been talked about in Hebrews chapter 11. And so because of that, we have a distortion of who God is, we have a distortion of God's expectations of us, we have a distortion of our expectations of God, we have a distortion of our attitude to the world and in the world and what the church is, and everything gets distorted because if you don't recognize God for who he is, but only the God of religion, even the God of Christian religion, and I am a Christian, but the God who has been adjusted and manipulated and, and, and changed over the course of history, then, then the one we believe exists can often not be this God who is love. So it, the business about also those who earnestly seek him, I, I used to think what this meant was, you know, you know, I have to believe he exists and I, I have to just, with every effort, every ounce of my being, everything, I have to earnestly seek him. That's not what it means. What it means is you have to really seek the God who is the real God, okay? It's not about the amount of effort you put in. It's about, but God wants your effort to be in earnestly seeking, not necessarily the God of religion or the God who was presented to you, but the God who really exists. And sometimes I don't know whether the God who really exists and the God who we have talked about and preached are one and the same person. Um, A guy called George MacDonald in the 1800s said, we will be horrified when we realize the things that we have believed about God. Faith, hope, love. So God's love language is, is, is faith. But faith in actually who he is, not who we think he might be. 
So faith is, is one of the sound bites, okay? Faith is the determined placement of belief and trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Let me say that again, that's very important. Faith is the determined placement of belief and trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Now, God's love language is not worship. That's problem number one. God's love language is not sacrifice. There's problem number two. And yet numbers one and two of the expectations placed upon people who claim to be lovers of God is what? Worship and sacrifice. But nowhere does it say that's his language. Faith is the language. God just wants you to believe that he actually is who he said he is. God is love. So worship and sacrifice is something you may wish to do and would be good to do in response to the revelation of who he is. But they are not God's love language. God can take it or leave it whether you worship him or not. Because he's not a narcissist. If worship is important to God... God is narcissistic. You understand what a narcissist is? Someone who is as obsessive self-love. Just like imagine if I'd said to Chris, I want to marry you. Why do you want to marry, marry me? Because I want you to worship me. We would not be here today 40 odd years on the journey. Or if I said to her, because I want you to make sacrifices for me. How many of you know that that, that is not the language of love? And yet we've been told God is love and in response to that love you must worship him, narcissist, sacrifice to him, controller. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I put a big question mark, not over the validity of those things in their right context or the application of those things in the practice of what we do for God, but at the root of that is loving God and we love God by having faith that he is who he says that he is. So faith becomes the determined placement of belief and trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God. Now, I, when I, I used this statement before some time ago, and then I, I read something in it that I wrote that I didn't like. I often find stuff like that. I originally wrote some years ago that faith in the, is the determined placement of belief and trust in the goodness, the power, and the faithfulness of God. Now, the problem is most people think that our faith has to be placed in the power of God. But you see, God is not trying to impress anyone with his power. And therefore his power is not what he looks for people to focus on, but most people focus on the power of God and most of the reason we focus on the power of God is because we're scared witless about the possibility of an eternal hell and the devil and demons and nastiness and wickedness. Therefore we need a powerful God to save us from that. That's because we're afraid of that and we also then are saying subconsciously that, that God is insecure. That, that he's not going to really know that he's powerful unless we keep telling him he's powerful. So we get all screwed up. Worship, sacrifice, power. Those, those are the ingredients of empire. Caesar said he was God. What did he demand? Worship, sacrifice, power. 
Now, it doesn't surprise me that we've come to those three conclusions because the God who we have created is more like the, the, the Caesar of an empire than he is the gentle king of a kingdom. The greatest attribute of God is not his power. The greatest attribute of God is his humility. So God did not so crush the world. Says God so loved the world that he gave. And we have this, whether you believe it or don't believe it, if it is true, it's pretty amazing. We have this incredible image of the God of all creation in human flesh, a baby, born in a manger, living with people, dying a sacrificial death, which he laid down his, his own life. Humility. I, 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 I tweeted something the other the other day that to me is fascinating. I'm definitely gonna, gonna preach this. This will preach. How many of you know what you call it when a, baby, a baby's head starts to show when it's being born? It's called crowning. And I'm gonna be a little blunt. When it pokes out of the vagina for the first time. The reason I say that is, have you understood that the first crowning of Messiah happened between the legs of a young virgin Jewish girl? Not on the cross, not fanfares in heaven, but the first crowning of Messiah happened between the legs of the young Jewish virgin girl. That was the first crowning. Why? Because he was crowned as Messiah in his humility. So all I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to disrupt some of the views that we have of God and pose the point that potentially we have distorted his image and we've made him more like a Caesar. We've made him more like a, 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 the ruler of an empire because worship and sacrifice and power are the elements of empire. So faith is not the determined placement of belief and trust in the power of God, which I thought it was for years. It's, it's in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Now I've got some good news and bad news for you. The bad news is God is not in control. If he is, he's doing a rubbish job. Seriously, come on. If God is in control, he's doing a rubbish job. He's mean, he's vindictive. So my conclusion is there either isn't a God or actually God's not in control. That's, that's the bad news, God is not in control. The good news is God is not in control. That's the good news. Why is it good? Because it means that we are not pawns in some eternal divine chess game where our choice and our personal will has no significance or meaning. See, see, some people think God put man into history and then God dictates history like some puppet maker from outside of history, but, but it's a greater miracle than that. God puts man in and then God comes down and walks with us through history so that we walk together and together we create what we know as the will of God. It's a partnership. So the good news is, God is not in control. The bad news is, God is not in control. The good news is that relationship is the key to that, and the key to that relationship is, is faith, hope, and love. It's why it says, this is all that remains when you strip all the other stuff away and take it all away. These three remain, and the greatest of these is love, because God is love. Is this making sense? So God actually 
could give a toss about you recognizing his power seriously. Because that's not his love language. It's you actually believing he exists and rewards those who look for that God who really exists. It's about you believing and trusting in his goodness and his faithfulness in partnership with you in the world. Here's another good soundbite. Faith is therefore not a tool to manipulate a miracle, but the deepest and highest expression of love towards God. I thought faith was the tool through which you manipulated a miracle. If we can just believe God enough, God, we believe you're so powerful. Somehow you could manipulate a miracle. Well, if that's true, I've failed on a lot of occasions when I would have liked to have succeeded. And that, that is beyond me, but I know it's part of humanity and being human. And we deal with that. But, but faith is not a tool to manipulate a miracle. It's the deepest and highest expression of love towards God. It's the faith that says, I believe in your goodness. I believe in your faithfulness. Unbelief is not opposite to faith. See, that, that again is another misnomer that we have had, that unbelief is opposite to faith. But the Apostle Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we live by faith and not by sight. See, unbelief's not the opposite thing to faith. Unbelief won't block your faith. Unbelief is something that happens from the thing that does interfere with your faith, and that's sight, Okay? How many of you know what we see has a huge influence on what we believe, what we hope for, and therefore usually what we can receive? What we see impacts that sight, natural sight. Because without faith, all you see is an image of the visible. But with faith, you have a revelation of the possible. Without faith, all you see is an image of the visible. That's all you see. This is all you see. That's all you get. There's no hope. There's no help. There's no life. There's no comfort. There's no joy. There's nothing beyond that moment. But the truth is, with faith, you have a revelation of the possible. Suddenly, you see something beyond what is happening. See, reason's another issue that comes in here. Reason not only robs you of the power to believe... And reason's good, and I'm reasonable. I love philosophy, I love psychology, and I love theology. Reason not only robs you of the power to believe, it robs God of the opportunity to work beyond the boundaries you've set for him. Because the very reason that you use to argue the case is the very reason that argues you out of the possibility of something happening beyond the box that you've set yourself in and the walls you've built for yourself. I'm trying to help you. So, that's faith. Let's talk about hope for a minute or two. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's firm and secure. I'm going to use my language now just to help you because I haven't time to explain it all. But it enters the very presence of God. Just, just like putting your hand through a curtain and finding something to hold on to. Imagine you can't see it, but, but you've got to get a grip and you put your arm through a curtain and you find something you can hold it. This is a little bit more complex than that in the context of its theology, but that really is the essence of what it means. But the point is this, hope is the anchor for the soul. I don't care whether you've been in church for one minute, one year, a hundred years if it were possible for some of you. Or not. Hope is the anchor for the soul. I don't care whether we're atheist, agnostic, 
you know, Catholic, Methodist, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever. Hope is the anchor for the soul. For humanity, hope is the anchor for the soul. You watch any community where hope is lost and watch what happens. Because hope is the anchor for the soul. Hope is a very important element. It's the anchor for the soul. Without it, you drift on every tide and you get swept by every current. And once you lose hope, faith has no viable material to work with. That's where the problem comes. So there's another wise statement in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, and this fits in any society at any time in, in any culture. It says this, that, that, that faith makes substance of what we hope for. In other words, faith has got nothing to work with unless it has hope. So when you lose hope... Faith has got nothing to work with. So I would propose to you that although we've talked about the importance of faith, and faith is believing God just exists for who he is, and if you look for who he really is, that's who you'll find. But if you don't have any hope that you're ever going to find that, you probably won't find it because faith actually is the, the, the product that gets hold of hope and shapes it into something visible and something real. But without hope, ain't going to be no faith. This is, my, this is my statement on hope. Hope is not a confession that we are one step from failure. It's a confident expectation that the last word has not yet been spoken and that there may well be a word beyond that. Let me explain that. Think about how you use hope. Oh, I hope I'll get home on time. I hope, I hope, I hope my job won't run out so that I get fired when I'm near to retirement age. I hope my kids are not going to finish up on drugs. Can you see how they're all confessions that we think we're one step from failure? There's nothing, there's nothing forward thinking, no momentum in those thoughts other than we use hope as the thing to say we might be one step from disaster. Oh, I hope my pension will last me until I finally go. See, that, that's a confession, a statement that, that I'm just one step from failure and hope's the only thing I've got left in that one step from failure. But that's not what hope is. Hope is a confident expectation that the last word has not yet been spoken and that there may well be a word after that. So yeah, all the things we said might be true, but hope has a confident expectation but says, but this is not the last word. And because hope is in our world, every one of you in here tonight has the right to say with everything you're facing, but this is not the last word. It might be the present word. It might be what's currently hanging in your life, but it's not the last word. And there may well be another word after that. Listen, that's what hope is. I want your heart to be full of hope tonight. What just happened, the disaster you faced, the loss that you faced, the situation you're looking at, the last word has not yet been spoken. That's, that's what this hope is that we're talking about here. So imagine when you think, I, I, I have a confident expectation that the last word hasn't been spoken. This is not it. This is not the end of the story. Faith can get a hold of that. And that faith then attaches you to know that because of who God is, God is with you. And you're going to make it. And it's going to be okay, however what okay looks like. 
But then let's take this on because we're, we've got to get to love. True hope is based in love. I want you to understand, true hope is based in love. That's why faith, hope, and love. But you see, most of us have been taught it the wrong way around. We've been taught you've got to have faith. And if you have a strong enough faith, and I don't just mean a strong enough Christian faith, but if you have a strong enough faith about your situation, then you'll have hope. And if you have hope, then you'll find love or you'll know that you're loved. I propose to you it's the other way around. That when you absolutely know that you are loved and how much you are loved, and particularly by this God who we're redefining who this God is, who's not that mean God who you have to say, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer, but says, I'm listening, you don't even have to ask me, I'm here. When we understand the extent to which we are loved unconditionally, that will put hope in your heart, and then that hope will produce faith, and then the faith will change the circumstance, but it all starts with love. So let's put it like this. True hope is based in love. But love which is defined by the following characteristics. Any love not expressing these things is not the God kind of love and is probably just religious love. And I'm not interested in you finding religious love. I want you to find the God kind of love because, listen, from my experience, religious love can get pretty mean. Because it was religious love. I have to love you, so I will. (laughs) And that love means I can be mean to you because for your own good. Have you heard all that stuff? For your own good, beat the crap out of you, but for your own good. Really? Maybe it was for your good. 90% of my discipline with, with my kids was more about how they were interfering with my life than my real desire to affect their life. (laughs) You're getting on my nerves, you're in the way. Causing me a problem, you're swallowing my time. And so that's not the God kind of love. And that's not how God deals with you, it's not how God thinks about you. You can spot the difference between the religious kind of love and the God kind of love between the Christian institutional kind of love and the Jesus follower kind of love by these things. And they're all in a great chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that's often used at, at weddings, which is a waste of time because ain't none of them listening and they're there anyway. They've got the mind on other things, so it just makes the preacher feel better. Listen to this, love is patient. Love is kind. I like that one specifically because I think there's a great lack of kindness. I think the way we deal with each other, I think the way we address our lives, the way we connect, the way we relate to our world has a great lack of kindness. Love is kind. That means that God is actually kind. That's quite a concept, a kind God. Not, not the God who, if you've done what's right, and he thinks you deserve it, because again, we're back to Greek or Roman gods, okay? Basic rule of thumb, the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased. We carry that through, through our dear friend Augustine into Christianity, the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased. So what's most people's view of God? God is angry, his anger must be appeased. So then, we decide that he was so angry that he would be 
molestation if he beat up on us so he, he takes his own son and beat his own kid up and kills his own kid. You get put in jail for that. You get put on a register, get your kids taken off you for that. Now, Jesus did die and God was involved, but if, if what we think was God doing what he did to Jesus, then that was actually child abuse. We, see, our whole mindset on this has to be changed. God is kind. There was a tremendous kindness happening even in the work of the cross, which if you want to talk to me after about that, I'll talk to you after about that. But there was a tremendous, tremendous kindness that was going on in what was the wisdom of God to resolve an eternal problem that he did pretty well and fixed it good doesn't boast, it isn't proud. That means it doesn't put some people above others. Isn't it, isn't it sad how even the church thing can come very boastful? Because it's a we're in, you're out. We've got it, you haven't got it. And then within the church community, well, we actually believe this right, but you all believe this wrong. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking, not easily angered. I love this one. Keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that fantastic? True love keeps no record of wrongs. So with true love, when you come and apologize for what it is that you did to wrong me, I can't remember what it is that you've come to apologize for, so there's no problem, is there? Something in the Bible called the New Covenant where it says about God, your sins and unrighteous acts I remember no more. Too many people are struggling to remember things that God's already forgot. You punish yourself and... Beat yourself up over stuff where you think, oh, what's God going to think of me? Because you're trying to remember things that God already forgotten. And if this is not a right definition of love, then we need to chuck the towel in. Because if God is love and he's not these things, then God is not love, okay? Love done delight in evil, rejoice with the truth. So here's the summary from that, from that chapter in verse 7. It always protects, this is how you spot real love. It always protects, always trusts, not demands to be trusted in, always hopes about you, always perseveres. And that's why it says, love never fails. That's the kind of love in action. Anything other than this is not love at all. So I propose to you that even what you've been sold as being love has often not been love. And I don't particularly know anybody who's great at this. We all have a shot at it, except for God himself. Who I have found always protects, always trusts in me, always hopes in me, always perseveres with me. And that love actually never fails. The guarantee of hope rests in the assurance of love. If you tonight can get an assurance of that kind of love in that kind of God, then the truth is you are guaranteed hope because hope rests in the assurance of love. And once you hold that assurance of love, you can't help but have hope. It's like hope naturally grows on the inside of you when you have a guarantee or an assurance of that love. But you see, the whole Bible narrative is actually to bring us to an assurance of that love. Some people say that the Bible is contradictory. I say, no, it's not contradictory. 
the Bible is comparative because how can you know one thing against another unless you have a comparison? So there's lots of stuff in there that are really just for comparative reasons to show you what you really don't want God to be like so you can really see what God is like because once you have an assurance of that love, you have the guarantee of hope because it rests in the assurance of that love. So I propose to you today that this God who we are to believe exists is this God It's this God who always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, who never fails. So the guarantee of hope rests in the assurance of love. And the guarantee of faith rests in the presence of hope. So if you can catch that love, I I guarantee you, you will have hope. And if you have hope, the guarantee of faith rests in the presence of hope. Because faith can't help do what faith does. When hope is present, faith has to do what faith does. Because it makes substance of things that we hope for. And this is why love never fails. So let me finish by reading you a few verses from Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a good question, isn't it? There's so much message about so many things that can separate us from the love of Christ that somehow God's love towards humanity and towards you and I is so flimsy and so fragile that just a wrong decision or a wrong choice or a wrong relationship or a or a wrong attitude, or a wrong direction actually is going to separate us from that love. But Paul the Apostle says here, but who? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who's, who's going to do that? It's, it's a great question. It says, shall trouble or hardship? Now, trouble or hardship might separate you from your own sanity. <laughs> might separate you from holding your emotions in. Persecution, famine, that in itself is a challenge and might separate you from a good meal and it might separate you from some self-confidence. Nakedness or danger or sword, well, you know, take of that whatever you want. Those things all carry with them certain elements in life because of what they are. But he says, in all those things, who will separate us from the love that is in Christ? You see, stuff, life happens. I'd like to use the proper word there because it would have more impact, but some, some of you would go away upset, okay? It begins with an S, and it happens, it happens, it happens because God's not in control because God is actually interested in you being you. If God is in control, you can't be you and he can't let you be you. But God wants you to be you. He loves you being you. And the greatest thing in God's heart is when you and him can partner together. That's what pleases his heart. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. That belief that he is who he says he is. And that this guy's amazing. And, and he's, you're speaking his love language. And then he speaks your love language. It gives you value and identity. And a sense of belonging. And he gives you hope. So, so that stuff carries with it what it is. But he says, but in all of that, who separates us from the love of Christ? You need to know, in all that stuff, you might be thinking, I haven't handled this very well. And you're probably right. But it has not in any way separated you from the love which is in Christ. If you let this be the last word, then trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword will be the last word. But if you, because you don't let that separate you from the love of Christ, grab that, that will not be the last word. I guarantee it, that will not be the last word in your life. Verse 37, knowing all these things, all of those things, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or in other words, you're going to not just get over it, but you're going to get through it. Verse 38, for I am convinced. He asked the question, now this is his answer. I am convinced... And I said this as well. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. You just need to realize it. You're too busy trying to find the faith to get the hope to receive the love. When God's saying, dummy, just receive the love which inspires the hope, which produces the faith, and then you become more than a conqueror through him who loves you. Nothing can separate you from the love. And then there's one more verse that's prior to that, verse 31, and I use this to finish. What then shall we say in response to this? That's the question. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so here's my challenge. If God is for us, if you understand love itself releases the hope that feeds the faith, that obliterates the if, you go out of here saying God is for us. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your problem is the if. If God is for us, Who can be against us? Do you know what happens? The if becomes bigger than the rest of the sentence. All we can see because of sight and reason is the if. Yeah, if God is for us, if God is for us, if God is for us. And the truth is if you can get rid of that, then God is for us. Who can be against us? If God, and that would be true, wouldn't it? If God is really for us, who can be against us? I want you to understand this love that releases the hope, that feeds the faith, that obliterates the F. So you can go out of here tonight absolutely assured, God is for us. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me and nothing can separate me from that love because what you've just done is made a journey that says these three remain, faith, hope and love. The greatest of these is love but when I catch the love it produces the hope that releases the faith and the if is taken out of the sentence. God is for me. God is for you tonight. He's for you. He's for you. Famine, tribulation, hardship, issues. He is for you. When you catch that in hope, remember, it's a confident expectation now that the last word has not been spoken. And when faith gets hold of that confident expectation, faith will move mountains in your life. Just bow your heads with me. Let's get rid of the if. Where do we start? Well, you don't start in what I think is the wrong narrative, the common narrative of religion. You don't start by, I've just got to get enough faith and I've, I've got to produce enough hope and I, I've got to try harder. No, where you start actually is by doing nothing other than believing that he, this God of love exists. And believing that this God who is love not only exists, but he rewards those who seek the one who 
is love. Not the other God, the God who is love. That's all you gotta do tonight. Just, just in your heart, just embrace with whatever strength you've got, just embrace the fact God loves you. And that all those things that we said about his characteristics, he trusts, he, he protects, he hopes, perseveres, it's love that never fails. If you will embrace that right now, that will cause hope to rise in your heart. And the if will disappear. God is for me. God is for me. There is no if. There is no if. This faith that comes from hope, that comes through love, takes away the if. God is for me. I don't care how big a mess you think your life's in. I don't care how big a problems you've got to face or what the issues. If you can catch this, God is for me. Paul says, who and what can be against us? It's the key to life and the blessing that God desires for you. Open your heart right now, receive it. Father, so in this place right now, may your love surround us. Draw us close with your arms. Let us feel the tenderness of your heart towards us. Let us feel that vicious, violent love that you have poured into our lives, that furious love, that you're not furiously mad, you're furiously loving. Let that furious love absorb every doubt right now in this place. So the hearts of these precious, wonderful, amazing people who you think the world of, who were worth the life of your son, will experience that love to produce the hope, to release the faith that says, God is for me, so who can be against me? In Jesus' name, amen. That's set you up for a good curry, hasn't it? Best way to follow that is baptize yourself in curry. <laughs> All right, we love you. We appreciate you. If we can answer any questions, we're always down here hanging around. Uh, otherwise, enjoy the rest of the evening and be blessed. God is for you, so nothing can be against you.